professor walks up to me, he says, Zumbo, he says, you think you're a really big shot. He says, and this is the truth, he says, I'll bet you a case of Lucky Lager beer that you can't sell a story to outdoor life. Maybe you're in Africa or in Argentina or something, and there it is, and you got one opportunity for a shot. That is pressure. People would come by and try the elk, and they say, gosh, that's really good. What is that? So I say, it's elk. You can't believe how many people said, what is an elk? What is an elk? He said, didn't any of those bucks have a brow time? So again, that just points out that you, you have to know what the laws are in different states. This is Jim Zumbo, and you're listening to The Wild Initiative. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. There's a lot of people that can pull the trigger on an animal, but they don't know what to do with it after. If you would have told me that a stupid turkey was going to make me get that excited, I'd have told you you were crazy. It's just a skill that you have to perfect over a lot of years. Hunting is a tribal activity. We've lost the tribe. We can't even hunt together anymore. Well, the people that are anti-hunting are usually pro-abortion. So kill the people, save the animals. I just remember riding my horse back to camp with the northern lights and the moose behind me, and I'm like, this is why I've done this. This is as cool as an experience as I will get. Hi, this is Jim Shockey. This is Sam Sohol, the public land bus guy. Hi, I'm Kimmy Greentree. Hi, this is South Cox with the Western Bowhunter Podcast. Hey, this is Ben Dedamonte, a.k.a. Shed Crazy. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. Hey, all, welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative, brought to you as part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. All right, y'all, so getting on to today's episode, I have another guest of uh, recommended by Larry Wysoon. It's been, uh, it's been a run of just amazing people getting, uh, that I've gotten to talk to that Larry's introduced me to. Uh, today, I have the one and only Jim Zumbo on the podcast. Y'all may remember him from, uh, from some of the stories Larry told in his episode. So I, we'll, uh, we'll have to give Jim a, a chance to turn the tables on Larry a bit. But Larry, uh, Jim, thanks so much for hopping on with me today. No, no problem, Sam. I'm glad to be here. So one thing I always like to start out with is just a, a little history of you. How did you get 
introduced to the outdoors and hunting and fishing? Well, basically, uh, I was raised in upstate New York, um, and my family were, my grandfather and my dad and uncles were all big rabbit hunters. We'd take beagle hounds out and, uh, and hunt bunnies, and I tagged along when I was a little kid. And so that kind of got it started. And later on, my dad was a scoutmaster, and I was a city kid. And uh, I went out camping and hiking and stuff and, and continued to hunt with the family. And then I decided that at some point I want to be either a forest ranger or a game warden. And uh, so I went to school, went to college, and uh, up in northern New York was my first school, Paul Smith's a little two-year forestry school. And I got a degree in, in uh, a two-year degree in forestry. And I wrote a little column up there, a little outdoor column. I was one time there was a, a big old buck. He was called Old Joe, and he was a swamp buck. And all the locals, this is right up near the Canadian border. All the locals were trying to get him. So I took off class one day with the old thirty thirty and was sneaking around the marsh. And up come this big ass whitetail. I mean, he was huge, and he jumped out. I couldn't get a shot because I was squeezed under a log. But anyway, I wrote about that buck, and I turned it into the local college newspaper and they printed it and i thought holy smokes i looked at my byline a hundred times it was called <laughs> old joe by jim zumbo i thought man that's a big deal so anyway i went out west at utah state and uh got into a fraternity and they're looking for somebody to write a, a deer elk forecast and in, in utah where we were in uh, northern utah so i wrote that and and the editor says how would you like to write an outdoor column for our newspaper called student life and i thought wow that's a big deal so I did. And uh, one day we went to a Paul Bunyan party. It was just a bunch of guys. There were no women in the field in those days. We're talking 55 years ago. I'm, I'm aging myself. But anyway, <laughs> we're at this party. We had a bathtub full of beer and we were eating burgers. And there was a couple of our professors and a bunch of guys. And one professor walks up to me. He says, Zumbo, he says, you think you're a really big shot because you write that little chicken stupid article in the college paper. <laughs> he says, and this is the truth. He says, I'll bet you a case of lucky lager beer that you can't sell a story to outdoor life. So of course I, I, I had a couple beers myself and I said, I'll take you up on that. Long story short, I wrote a, a story for outdoor life, sent it in and um, bottom line is they accepted it. So I got my case of lucky lager beer, but uh, that's how it started. And I thought, man, I'm a, I'm going to be a big time writer. Well, of course, outdoor life's in New York City, and I didn't know any of those people. My next five or six attempts were failures, but anyway, I got lucky and um, was able to have a few more published, and it kind of went from there. And as far as my career goes, I worked 15 years as a forest ranger and wildlife biologist for several government agencies, and then in 1976 or 78 outdoor life gave me a an offer to be the western editor for the magazine so i quit my 15-year job with uncle sam and went to work for outdoor life and as the years went on i became editor at large and then i became the hunting editor which was probably about 20 years out of my 30 uh with outdoor life i was hunting editor so that's basically my career so uh what advice would you have to someone say that's that's in college and has a passion for the outdoors? They love hunting, they love fishing, and maybe they want to become a, a writer in the outdoor industry. What advice would you have for someone like that? Well, 
One of the things I do, I'd suggest is what I didn't do. I never took a journalism course in college because I never expected to be a full-time journalist. Uh, I always thought I'd be out in the woods working. Uh, so I would suggest uh, taking journalism and definitely, absolutely getting a degree, if possible, in natural resources. And, you know, you've got to basically have a feel for the English language and know how to write a complete sentence and, and have some skills that way. Seriously, I know some doctors who couldn't even write a complete sentence. But, <laughs> but uh, so that's the key, I think, is to learn um, about journalism and get the degree and then maybe start out with a small town paper as a reporter and work your way up or get a copy of Writer's Market which is uh, available every year. It's revised. It's a big, huge book, and it has thousands of magazines, uh, the names of the editors, what kind of stories they want, what they pay, and all the information you need. So you can pick and choose and see if there's something there that you have a uh, some kind of expertise in and try that as well. But uh, through my life, I've met so many youngsters, well, not youngsters really, but teenagers or maybe older. So I want to do just what, like what you do. I want to go hunting and fishing and get paid for it. How do I do that? Well, <laughs> you know, I think I was, I was, I was born at the right time for that. And now things are so much different. A lot of stuff is digital. A lot of the old magazines are, are going away. I understand outdoor life and field and stream were just sold. And I don't know what's going to happen with them. Of course they are the two, the two biggest, uh, outdoor magazines in the country, but, uh, things are different. But again, I, my old, my dad always said, where well, there's a will, there's a way. And, but, and again, but you've got to be able to at least write somewhat skillfully or at least tell the story. One of the big problems is if you're going to look at a certain magazine or a market, then read the magazines and see what the editors like, what kind of stories they like, what kind they don't like. When I was Western editor, I'd, I'd have people send me stories about skydiving and kayaking. And, and you know, outdoor life was hunting and fishing. That stuff didn't work. And so, obviously, they didn't do their homework. So, that's that's kind of my, my best advice. Well, you know, I always – I've had this topic come up a few times on the podcast. You know, and I've, I've had people reach out to me and, like, you know, okay, how do you get into the outdoor industry? And um, – and it's such a, a wide, vague question. And, and so many of them, like you said, they want to, they, they want to hunt and fish for a living. And what I don't think they realize is that, okay, yeah, you get to hunt and fish a lot, but you really don't hunt and fish for a living. You write for a living or you guide for a living or you uh, do photography for a living. You just happen to do that while hunting and fishing or with with other hunters and anglers and it's it's not like you necessarily go out and uh you're not you're not getting paid to go shoot an animal you're getting paid to write about shooting an animal that's a, that's exactly right and and one of the things that when i was actively writing full-time whenever i went hunting i had to have a good camera and i had to take a lot of pictures and that kind of that was work. I mean, that was serious work. You had to do a lot of setup stuff and, and before and after and and the writing itself, you had to take notes and it had to be good enough to satisfy some editor 2000 miles away. So there was always pressure. There was always some stress involved with that. And just just to kind of a move forward for a second, when I started doing TV, that was a totally different dimension because 
hunting is not a spectator sport, but TV made it a spectator sport. I couldn't do anything, and Larry Wysoon knows this very well. I couldn't do anything unless that cameraman was two feet away from me, breathing down my neck. I, I mean, <laughs> if I turned up, he was on my – he sometimes he stepped on my boots, and that was, that was not fun because if, if – if, and a lot of times everything had to be perfect. Uh, there had to be good light. The animal had to be in focus. He had to see the animal when I did, and we might be hunting in timber. Or maybe we're hunting waterfowl and which duck or goose am I shooting at, you know, and, and it's just, uh, but I think the biggest frustration was, as you probably know, as an outdoorsman, that sometimes the best opportunities are early in the morning, right at shooting light. Well, that big old damn camera doesn't work <laughs> at shooting light. So here you are, you know, getting ready to lower, lower the boom on an elk or a deer and your cameraman says, wait. I, I have no light and you just want to turn around and whack him, you know, but you have to go along with the flow, but that's a little aside as far as the whole TV thing. It's different. So uh, tell me a little bit about your time on TV. Uh, what, uh, you know, what, what was the show? Well, it was called Jim Zumbo outdoors it was on the outdoor channel. And I think I started that about 2001 and had about an eight or nine year run. And back in those days, the Outdoor Channel was basically the only one out there to speak of. And then the Sportsman Channel came along. But uh, I didn't really want to do TV because, I, again, I didn't care for the fact that I had to have a cameraman with me. I'm kind of a loner. I, I like to do public land DIY hunts as much as possible. But uh, a guy by the name of Jake Hartwick was one of the founders and the vice president of the Outdoor Channel. He said, Zumbo, I want you to come on the channel. He said, I'll take care of everything. Because uh, I told him, I said, you know, I don't know anything about it. I don't know anything about getting sponsors or producing a damn show or editing. He says, well, we'll find you a good cameraman and we'll take care of everything. So that's kind of how it started. But uh, most of my hunts on TV, people kind of specialize in things. But most of my hunts were in the mountains on horseback, not only right here around Cody, Wyoming, where I live, but I did a lot of stuff up in Canada and Alaska, and all over the Rocky Mountains. So I'd, I'd say probably 75% of my TV content was was hunting in backcountry wilderness areas, and, and that's that's what I kind of love to do. And that was the most challenging because you had to get all that gear on horses, and, you know, you had to have batteries that were, that were charged and all sorts of logistical problems. But uh, that, that, was, that was kind of my forte. You know, it's, I've always – I watch those shows a lot or – and and everyone's a little bit different, but, you know, the shows where you can tell uh, there's a cameraman there for sure, you know, following the person around and, right. and you're sitting there and, you know, you've got whoever it happens to be like belly crawling, you know, through the, through the sagebrush with, you know, they're holding their bow and there's, they're sneaking along. And then you're like, well, what the heck's a cameraman doing behind them? Like, how yeah. is this? how is this possibly working? And it's, or, you know, they're, they're like posted up kind of behind a tree. That's, that's just barely covering them up. And you're, you're, you're thinking to yourself like, well, I know this guy, this isn't like, you know, somebody with an eye, like, you know, people now film, film with iPhones and things, but like, especially some of these bigger shows, you're like, this is not some dude sitting around with an iPhone back there. How yeah. on earth is he staying concealed? with this big old camera on his shoulder. And it's, I've always been fascinated by that and impressed by the cameraman as well. Cause those have to be some talented in shape dudes. Yeah. And, and also there's some reenacting that's done. Like when you, if you put a deer or elk down, you know, you go and make the recovery and the cameraman's behind you and, and 
and back in the old days, it was kind of comical because you'd see the deer laying on the ground, and here comes a hunter approaching the deer, and you know the cameraman's already there. He's behind the deer or elk, you know, and it just didn't make sense. But there's a lot of reenacting that's done. For example, almost always, well, most of the time, uh, you'll see an animal go down. But just prior to that, you'll see the finger on the trigger and you'll see the safety go off. Well, that's all reenacted. That's done after the shot, you know, and and it's sometimes the cameraman will ask you to actually shoot at something. So you pick out a stump or something that's safe and and he'll film you taking the shot. But there's a few little things that that kind of make it all go together. But, you know, some of these bigger shows, they have two cameramen. Uh, When I quit doing TV, I had two Uh, wherever we went, whether we went to Canada or Alaska, there's always two guys following me and. And one of them would be right on me and one of them would be right on the right on the quarry, you know. So but it's uh, it's just tough when you've got somebody else out there and you're hoping that he sees what you see and you're hoping that everything happens. And God forbid if you should wound something, because, you know, that's that just doesn't that's that's kind of a, a turn off. If you miss, that's fine. And I don't mind showing misses. You know, I've done that enough times in my life, but uh so there's a lot of stress. You might be in a place where you get one shot at an animal and it might cost you tens of thousands of dollars or a company to get there. You know, the travel, maybe you're in Africa or in Argentina or something, and there it is. And you got one opportunity for a shot. That is pressure. I mean, you've got to make that shot perfectly. And that leads to another thing. People that watch TV shows, outdoor TV hunting shows want to see the kill. I don't care what you say. That's if if you do a, a show or two without a kill, you will get lots of complaints. Now, because of my background in forestry and, and wildlife, I like to work conservation in on the on the hunts. And and you know, like for example, old fire areas and clear cutting will lead to more browse and, and better hunting. So I'll kind of get into that and talk about it. And I like to get into the outfitter's lifestyle and his family and try to tell the story. But by God, you better have a kill. Because uh, the uh, the producers and the owners of the show would come down and say, you know what, you got to have that kill, and that's that's not so much the case these days. Although it's it's uh, it's almost mandatory. I feel like in the past maybe five to ten years, it's definitely just from my experience with the hunting media I've seen, it's definitely changed, and people get a lot more invested in the stories. But I think that's also because the the turnover of media is like it's it's constant now there's always a new episode there's always a new show versus some of the older stuff you may only be getting one episode a week versus now you could get a new little mini episode every day of a of a hunting series exactly and so you can you can have those episodes you can have a lot more episodes without a kill or without kind of a conclusion before you get to that and um People, you know, people get invested in those stories a lot more. Sure. But I still think, you know, it comes down to you want to be inspired. And the experience definitely is inspiring, but you also want to see success. Right. You know, we have more of a tolerance, I think, for the for just the story at the moment. But yeah, eventually, even today, somebody wants to see an animal go down. Sure. Now, I've done shows where I've come. Well, for example, I was hunting up in uh up in the Arctic Circle for muskox and caribou, and I came back from there with three episodes, three totally different shows. 
And that's one thing that's kind of necessary to help on the budget, because when you make those trips like that, you want to try to get as many episodes as you can. But as you say, you know, they kind of one leads to another to another. And uh, it, it carries, this, you know, it carries the story farther. But uh, yeah, TV has is, is always been fun. But again, I just hated that camera guy. I'll tell you an interesting story. <laughs> I was down, uh, I was down hunting the oscillated turkey in uh, Yucatan. And to get to get the world slam on turkeys, you got to have the oscillated. Well, this thing looks like a peacock. You know, it doesn't it doesn't gobble. It makes this weird sound. And back in those days, you had to shoot them off the roost. Now, that sounds like, oh, my God, shoot a trick you off the roost. That's a cardinal sin. Well, if you didn't shoot them off the roost, you weren't going to get one. <laughs> what you do is you follow you'd follow this uh, this young man around in the woods in the dark. And he would have spotted a, a turkey the evening before and he would know exactly how to get to that bird. Well, I was following it. Well, I wasn't actually following this young man. He grabbed me and said, this way, senior, you know, so I'm following him through the jungle. And he's got, he doesn't even have a shirt on. My cameraman's <laughs> falling, my cameraman's falling all over behind me. And all of a sudden he stops and he points up in the air and at a tree. And I very vaguely see this bird up there and it was shooting light, but it was too dark for the camera. And my cameraman's setting up. He's got the tripod, and and I'm saying, "Are you ready? Are you, what you want your cameraman to say is I'm on him." Yeah. When he says I I'm on him, boom, that's what it takes. So I'm waiting for him. Waiting for I can't can't you see him? Can't you come on? Isn't there enough light? Can't you do something with that damn camera and get some light? You know, and this bird's ready to pitch down. You know, he's cocking his head back and forth, and I know. <laughs> he's, and and the guide is there. He has he's bewildered. Has no idea why I'm not shooting. Finally, I swear within seconds before that bird coming down, my camera says I'm on him. So <laughs> that was just that oh, was just a split second. <laughs> <laughs> and once they get down on the ground, you'll never see him again in the jungle. So anyway, that was crazy. I can I can only imagine what that poor guy is thinking this whole time. Like, what? <laughs> what is this crazy American doing right now? I took yeah, him exactly. right to the dang bird. Why isn't he shooting the bird? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh man, and trying to trying to explain hunting television to some of these guys, like you know, especially in a spot like the Yucatan or something, you know, yeah, it's one it's one thing, you know, talking to a guide, say in North Dakota or something, but right. yeah, down in the Yucatan, trying to explain, yeah, <laughs> all of the requirements uh, to exactly. those poor guides, I can only imagine. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So your passion then is kind of the the big uh, Western mountain hunts then, going in on a horseback for days at a time and chasing chasing those big game animals? That's right. Although when I was hunting editor for Outdoor Life, I had to write a column every month as well as feature stories and sometimes vignettes. So I needed a lot of material. So I decided one day to go on an odyssey and hunt all states, all 50 states for deer. And at that time, I had maybe 25 states. So I did. And sometimes I'd jump in my pickup truck and say bye to my wife, and I'd be gone for three weeks and maybe drive to Maine and 
in two or three states that were adjoining, maybe Maine and Vermont and, and uh, New Hampshire, whatever, until I finally got done and I hunted them all. North Dakota was the last one because I couldn't draw a rifle tag in North Dakota, so I had to hunt with a bow. But uh, So I did a, a lot of whitetail hunting, and I loved it. And I've hunted whitetails out of tree stands, and I've hunted them in Texas, you know, from blinds and stuff. But but by and large, the, the mountain hunting was, was pretty much where I had concentrated my efforts. And people ask me my favorite species to hunt, and that would always be elk. I've written seven books on elk hunting, and uh, I can see it. In fact, I'm looking out my window right now. Honest to God, I can see elk out there. I'm looking north off to the <laughs> to the to some fields, but but elk has always been my all time favorite, and uh, uh, mule deer as well. Of course, here in Wyoming, we've got a gazillion antelope, so um, that's kind of where it's at. But I do like to go to other states and and hunt whitetails. For a long time, I'd go to Iowa. Uh, my old buddy, the late Tony Knight, who invited the who invented the uh, inline muzzleloader, had a farm, and he'd invite some writer friends, and we go hunting big bucks. And I've been to Texas many, many times. Larry, Mary Burnham, uh, Gary Robertson, who, who owns Burnham Brothers Calls, and a variety of other states. But when it comes right down to it, it it's it's the mountains that uh, that I love to hunt the most. So, what is it? You know, because I'm I'm the same way. I love. I love elk. It's I'm obsessed with them. I think they're the most amazing creatures on earth and I enjoy hunting mule deer. I have, I've yet to, uh, I've been building points for pronghorn in, uh, in Wyoming. So I've yet, I've yet to get to hunt pronghorn, but, uh, I'm, we'll have to change. We'll have to change that, Sam. Seriously. Next year we'll get you down here and hunt pronghorn. Sounds good. I should have uh, I should have a decent amount of points, uh, a okay. decent amount of points by then so uh yeah so let's see what let's see what uh what i can draw for next year that'd be amazing that's a promise, that's a promise and i just made it public to all of your listeners so there we go <laughs> i better i better get this podcast released quick man <laughs> get it out there <laughs> yeah you bet but so what for you what is it what is it about elk because i feel i feel really the same way i think they're the most amazing creatures on earth and i'm obsessed with them and so I always love to hear because everybody's reasons are so different. Well, you know, I think as far as elk go, when I first started hunting elk, I was living in Utah. And this is back in the, in the 60s when there were not a lot of elk and most of them were on private ranches. And I hunted for six years with my buddies and hunting BLM, Bureau of Land Management Land, and were with a zillion other hunters before I even saw a legal bull, six years. And I got to the point where I was – this was so challenged. I said to myself, well, one day I'm going to learn everything I can about these animals, you know, and hunt them as much as I can. So I did. And um, to answer your question, what I love about them most is number one, they live in the most spectacular country in the West. You know, they live in the yellow aspens and the timber and, and some of them live out in the sagebrush, but they're big, uh, a big bowl of weight, 650, 700 pounds body weight. And they're, they're beautiful. The, the color of them, the antlers are spectacular. And of course, the, the ability to vocalize with them, the communication by, by use, by bugling and using cow calls. And, uh, just the whole essence of hunting elk in the mountains is to me has always been a great big turn on. I, I got to the point where I was doing TV and with outdoor life, right on elk and, three or four states a year and also Canada. Uh, there was a place up in British Columbia where I go pretty much every year. But then again, on the table, my wife won't eat beef anymore. 
I'm nothing as beef. You know, when we go to a restaurant, I'll have a steak, but she's got to have mm-hmm. elk. She won't eat beef. She's gotten to the point where, and and that's our all time favorite for for eating. So that plus all the uh, all of the other reasons I mentioned is is one of the reasons why I like elk so much. They're just they're just amazing animals. You know, I uh, it, I finally got my first elk this year down in Arizona. And, Good and, for you. Uh, I've been trying. Thank you. I've been trying for for four years and. Uh, Finally, you know, with the help of my, my buddy who took me out, he guided me, uh, I got, uh, got my first elk and it's been, it's just, it's been amazing. Like having that in the freezer and uh, cause I've gotten a couple of deer before it's always been smaller. So I've been a very, I've been a bit more reserved with my usage of the meat. Right. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I feel like I'll save it for something bigger and more special. Sure. Than just kind of like everyday eating, but having this elk and having that full freezer, yeah, <laughs> it's just it's just nice to be. I mean, and it's you would never guess like your average person would never guess any difference, mm-hmm. really, if you never told them. You know, if you never told them, I grilled up a uh, I grilled up a big old elk round steak uh, when I went back to California to pick up all my stuff and move out to Montana. Uh, I brought back some elk with me and. Uh, grilled up just a big old elk round steak, you know, uh, used a rub, got a, I mean, I did this thing up really just incredibly. It was, it was fantastic. And you would have never guessed, like it was just as rich. And I mean, I like it. I liked it better personally, cause it was lean, you yeah. know, you didn't have to, you know, you weren't sitting there trying to pick through the, the big veins of fat yeah. and everything, but it was still yeah. flavorful and just juicy. Exactly. Oh, gosh, I'm, I'm like drooling right now. About it. <laughs> it's getting close like to lunch. To process my, I like to process my own and uh, I've got a room. I've got a, one of the big grinders and I've got a, a mixing thing where I can mix the meat in the suet or whatever. And I make my own sausage and burger and, and cut everything up myself. And to me, that's, that's a big part of it. I have, a, I have a lot of fun doing that. And I've cut, I've cut up stuff in that room from doves to moose. And, uh, it's just a challenge and I know what meat it is. You know, I, I, you know, of course it's organic, which everybody makes a big deal about these days. They're out there in the wild and they're not eating any pesticides or fertilizers or whatever steroids. But I think that elk are, I just, I can't describe it. It's just, and you know what I mean too. Oh yeah. It's just, they're just amazing critters. Well, I always, you know, and I've said this a few times on the podcast before, it's like, Imagine, you know, you run into someone in the city that has literally zero experience with the outdoors. I mean, they haven't watched a, a show, nothing. They barely know what a deer is. Imagine then if you just sat down and you tried to, to fully describe an elk to this person, they would think you were, you had lost your mind. Like these are ridiculous. And you're like, okay, well, it's like, it's kind of built like a cow, but it's the size of a horse. And they they they've got these giant antlers that are like four or five feet long and they make this screaming noise and squeaking noises and this and that to communicate um and they taste fantastic they'd be looking at you like you had lost your ever-loving mind i think i think we take it for granted that these are creatures straight out of a fantasy novel they're amazing yeah it's interesting you say that years ago when I was doing television, I used to go to a cable show every year, and the cable shows were either in, in New Orleans or in uh, Los Angeles. 
And you never know who you'd see. These were giant shows. The booths were huge. Uh, HBO would be there in Disneyland. And and you might walk into Sylvester Stallone or <laughs> you just, I mean, this was, and most of the people were walking around with three-piece suits, right? Uh, they, were, they were all city folks, all of them in production and TV of some sort. And I was there with the Outdoor Channel. And I had a little two burner stove and I was cooking stuff, cooking elk and salmon. And I would give out samples. Well, most of the booths gave away free stuff. So what the free stuff that we gave away was my elk. Well, in the meantime, I had the, uh, the venue chefs cook up huge amounts of this elk, according to my recipe and bring <laughs> it out in these great big giant dishes. People would come by and try the elk and I say, gosh, that's really good. What is that? I say, it's elk. You can't believe how many people said, what is an elk? Just like you said, what is an elk? And so I try to tell them and people say, well, where can I get an elk? And I'd say, do you know any hunters? And most of them would say, no. Now we're we're talking LA, right? Yeah. And I'd say, well, the next best is you can buy elk. You can actually, you know, buy elk that are raised in on elk farms and they're, they're raised for that reason. And I, then I told them, well, you might be paying 20 bucks a pound, you know, (laughs) <laughs> so so anyway i i try to explain to folks what elk were and i had, i wish i had a video set up so i could show them pictures of bulls bugling and whatever but uh at any rate you're right it's it's tough for people to comprehend i've i've seen by the way i've seen some city hunters i've been there on a couple of occasions uh when we were in the back country i had a guy one time uh pass up a giant mule deer a giant mule deer and he had a tag i already gotten my deer it was an outfitter he was on a horse behind us and i told the guy get off your horse and shoot that deer <laughs> and he sat on his horse and i said get off your damn horse and shoot that buck and he still didn't get off well i got off my horse and i grabbed a hold of his reins and said, please shoot that buck he said that's not a deer that's an elk <laughs> I couldn't. And all of a sudden, here come the outfitter around the bend, mad as hell. He says, what the hell happened? Why didn't you shoot that giant buck? And the guy was mortified. It, uh, just, but I've seen other folks that <laughs> I'm getting off the subject here, but I've oh, no. actually seen folk. And, you know, in moose country, I hate to say this, but some people will actually shoot a moose and think they're an elk. And you'll see signs. This is a moose. It makes it look stupid, right? This is what a moose looks like. But people see an animal coming through the timber and they see those dark legs and they don't know that it's not an elk and they might shoot it. So at any rate, that's, that's just a little aside from what you said. Oh no. And I mean, I, to some extent I get it, you know, I've, I've, I'm a studier and I've always been a studier. And so I've, you know, the past four years that I've been hunting, I, you know, I spend every spare moment I have looking at these animals, watching videos. I've got, you know, whether it's on Netflix or Amazon Prime or just on YouTube or whatever, I've always got some sort of film playing. And and so I feel like I've been pretty educated on what they look like, you know, sure. whether it's bulls or cows or, or does or bucks, whatever it happens to be. Yeah, exactly. And you can't you can't blame a person who hasn't hunted. You know, I. I had a guy here this summer, we were out and uh, it was a bunch of antelope out there. He said, look at those deer. Well, he was not an outdoorsman. He was a city guy and he didn't know, you know? So you, like you say, you have to study and know what's what. And, you know, I, I almost have more 
a little bit of added respect for that, that guy that was on the horseback, you know, with, with you and the outfitter because he didn't take that shot. You know, he like, I mean, okay. Yeah. It was kind of dumb that he thought it was an elk and it was actually a mule deer or whatever. Yeah. But I, I almost have a little bit of added respect for him that even with, you know, you being like, shoot the damn deer <laughs> um, that he stuck by his guns, even though yeah. his, his guns were, were wrong. Um, <laughs> like it takes a, it takes a lot of integrity to be able to do that. When you got someone sitting there pressuring you like, shoot it, shoot it, shoot it. Yeah, exactly. Well, maybe if the outfitter said shoot it, he would have shot it. He didn't know who I was. I didn't know who he was, you know, yeah. we were, I went along for the heck of it. But so, but uh, that was one of the biggest bucks I've ever seen in my life. That was over in the Grays River country in Western Wyoming, <laughs> which is known for big deer. But, you know, then all of that being said, it is our responsibility. It doesn't matter how new you are to the outdoors. It is our responsibility to educate ourselves and to be ethical. And, you know, again, I understand somebody that's new to this, confusing maybe a cow elk for a cow moose. And I, I could understand it, but there's no excuse for shooting that animal. That's exactly If you're right. going to be out in the woods you need to be educated and you do and you need to read you need to read the regulations really read the i'll tell you an interesting story one time i was when i was living in utah i had drawn a wyoming uh buck tag which was pretty close to the border i live near flaming gorge and vernal close to wyoming so i drawn this wyoming tag in wyoming a deer had to have four points to be legal in that particular unit so I was up there with my son on opening day. Here come three big bucks boiling over this ridge. And they we were we were in the sagebrush. We stayed quiet and they started feeding right in front of us, maybe 80 yards away, 90 yards away. And I looked at them and every one of them was a three point. Every one of them. And it had to be a four point to be legal. And I'm telling my son, I'm whispering, God, I don't see a fourth point in any one of those. Do you? And he says, No, Dad, I don't. So I mean, we're sitting there with binoculars for 10 minutes and we could not get a fourth point on any buck. Well, anyways, they drifted off and uh, went back to the truck to have lunch. Game warden comes by, Wyoming game warden. He says, how'd you do? And I says, oh, we saw some really nice bucks, but they weren't legal. He said, he said, they weren't. He says, what were they? I said, they were all three points. He said, didn't any of those bucks have a brow tine? I said, well, yeah. He said, well, in Wyoming, a brow tine counts. You were looking at four-pointers. <laughs> in Utah, a brown tine, brow tine does not count. You have to count the four points on the forks. So, again, that just points out that you, you have to know what the laws are in different states. So, again, in, in Montana, where you live, for example, you've got a – what's your hunter orange law? You probably have to have a hat and a vest. There's a certain amount like of – it's, you know, and somebody's going to correct me. It's something like 50 square. There has to be a certain amount of square inches. I can't right. remember if it's required for you to have a hat or if it's just the. Well, again, every state has a law. I can tell you that Colorado requires 500 square inches. And that you have to be, you have to wear a hat and that hat cannot be a camo hat. It's got to be a solid orange hat. Plus your vest or your, your jacket has to make up the rest of it. In Wyoming, only a hat is is required, so you can only you can you only need to have a, an orange hat. So again, every state has a different law, and it's incumbent incumbent on us as hunters to 
to know those laws. You know, sometimes game wardens take a dim view if you're ignorant and, and really don't know. Um, sometimes even blatant laws are broken because people are, are careless. So it's, it's, you got to be responsible when you're out there. I, I've heard people say that if you hunt enough, you're eventually going to break a law. You know, uh, inadvertently, not intentionally, but maybe something you screwed up on, didn't read close enough. So that's that's always that's always part of it. And, you know, it's not a fun thing. Like sitting there scanning the regulations is not like, you know, when we think about prepping for your hunt, you know, (laughs) you don't want to sit and read the, you know, the whatever few pages and sort through it and. But it's so important. And even for reasons that are beneficial to you outside of just not breaking the law. But like you said, you could have shot any of those or several of those deer probably, but you didn't even realize it. And yeah, I didn't know the law. There was uh, I was hunting Montana last year. I had a I had an elk and a mule uh, mule deer tag. And in Montana on the general tag, it, it differs from unit to unit, whether you can shoot a white tail or a mule deer, a doe or a buck. And it's completely different just about every single unit. True. And so there was a lot of times where, you know, I'd go to a new unit and I would, I'd, I'd hop over to this new unit and I would forget to double check the regs before going out just because I'm switching, I'm moving, I'm thinking, you know, I'm moving fast. And I, I was, I was mostly chasing elk deer was kind of secondary, uh, but I'd forget to check those regulations. And I would see, I would see a, a mule deer or a whitetail and I'd, I'd sit there and I'd have just a moment, plenty of time to have what, you know, I was there for bow and uh, archery and rifle season. So, you know, whether it was pull back my bow or, or pull up my rifle, I had plenty of time for that. Right. What I didn't have time was to pull up my phone, pull up my Onyx, <laughs> double or whatever it was, yeah. double check the regulations. Oh crap! Can I shoot? Can I shoot a, a whitetail buck in this unit? Oh, I hope so. Oh crap! And then by that time, the things like what's this idiot standing around for and is gone. Yeah. But, you exactly know, right. It's it's not just important for staying out of trouble. It's important for having the most successful hunt you can have. Yeah. Exactly. What I do is I, I, I apply for multiple tags here in Wyoming, and, and here you can actually shoot three elk, one bull and two cows, and a buck antelope and, and four does, and a buck deer and four does. So I apply for multiple tags. This year I got seven tags. So I, on a little piece of paper, I'll write down the, the species, the unit, and the season dates, and I'll actually glue that on the dash of my pickup truck so I can refer to it. Now, some of them, one whitetail doe tag had to be had to be shot within a quarter of a mile of an irrigated field. Now, that's a depredation hunt. So I want to make mm-hmm. sure I know what the hell tag I'm putting on that doe, because otherwise you could be in big trouble if the game warden comes along. And, and like you say, the OnX thing works only if, if which is a fabulous app. Everybody I know uses it. It only works if you use it correctly, you know, and you, you pay attention to the boundaries. As you know, every unit has a different boundary. It's it's a little confusing here in Wyoming. I don't know what it's like in Montana, but here a boundary can be a hydrological divide. Okay, maybe unit 18 is west of that divide and maybe unit 19 is east of that divide. Well, a hydrological divide doesn't mean a stream or a creek. It's just kind of a 
maybe a little draw in some hills. And you have no damn idea where in the world that hydrological divide is. So the, the onyx thing will tell you. And uh, that that's a great, great asset to have when you're hunting. Oh, yeah. And, it, you know, it's just it comes down to we just need to be as educated as possible. And it's not always fun. It's not the not the cool stuff that you want to sit and post about on, on Instagram or, right. yeah. or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's, I, I, I mean, other than necessarily being, well, I mean, even more so than being proficient with your weapon, the most important thing yep. to your hunt is, is being educated and legal. Because exactly. if you're not legal, it doesn't matter how proficient you are with that weapon. Yep. You know, you are not an ethical hunter at that point. Exactly. Exactly right. Yep. And now, speaking of being proficient with your weapon, you know, that brings up another point. A lot of guys, uh, especially non-residents, will come out here and they'll zero their rifle in at home, whether they're in Ohio or Pennsylvania or Georgia, and they call it good at 100 yards. You know, okay, I got a nice little, nice little grouping at 100 yards, so I'm going out to Colorado or Montana. And and I'm going to go hunt an elk or a deer. Well, they get out here, and there's an antelope out there 350 yards away. I have no idea what that bullet's doing. They know what it's doing at 100 yards. So, obviously, the suggestion is to is to uh, understand the ranges. And I'm talking about conventional guns. Nowadays, you know, we've got the long-range stuff that'll kill stuff out at 1,000 or more yards. But just with conventional rifles. So, it behooves a hunter to to uh, get very familiar with that, with that rifle and understand what that bullet's doing out there past 150, 200 yards. And a way to do that, as you know, there's so much land in Montana and the West uh, Bureau of Land Management Forest Service. Once you get on public land, you can get out of your truck and set up and set a target up at 300 yards and see what's going on and, and just know. So that's always important. And that, you know, and that was something I talked with, uh, recently just talked with Tim Fallon about. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he runs the, the Sam Hunter training program and, yeah. and he's very focused on, okay, yeah, it's one thing to be able to shoot out to a thousand yards. Is that effective in a hunting scenario? Is it ethical in a hunting scenario? Right. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, there's so many challenges. There's so many, there's so many challenges to long range shooting. I mean, you have got to have, first of all, you got to have a rifle and a scope that are up to the task and they're not cheap. You know, they're, they're, they're fairly spendy, but you're shooting at an animal a thousand yards or more away. You had better know what the wind is doing. It may not be blowing where you're shooting from as much as it is or, or less out there where that elk or deer is at a thousand yards away. And, uh, there's, there's a lot of variables and lots of folks think it's, uh, ethical and fine and you know everybody's got their own choice some guys hunt with a stick bow you know they hunt with a long bow and some hunt with an old flintlock it's it all depends on on you know on what you like to do and, and what you uh what you perceive as the way you like to hunt so changing gears a little bit here uh you know uh, i talked with larry and as as i mentioned earlier he kind of Kind of threw you under the bus a little bit with a couple of stories. Uh, <laughs> Just a couple. <laughs> so you know, after after he he explained, you know, well, well, one, I would love for you to give your side of your side of the story because, uh, as he tells it, 
um, they dropped you off to uh, to a turkey spot, I believe, or I can't remember if it was a turkey spot or a tree stand for for deer. But uh, they came back an hour later, and you were still tangled up in a barbed wire fence, <laughs> hadn't moved. Huh. Actually, I was I was hunting on a ranch in in Texas with Larry. We were hunting turkeys, and we were fishing for gar in this canal. And I decided to go off and look for a turkey. So I left the group, and I had barely gotten 150 or 200 yards away when there was a fence. And I decided to go under it rather than over it. So I'm wiggling under the fence, and I've got a backpack on. And I realized as I get almost halfway through that I am stuck. I'm I'm really stuck. I can't wiggle forward or backward. (laughs) If I yelled loud enough, they would have heard me, but I would have never heard the end of it. So (laughs) I just just worked my way out of there. it might have taken me another 20 minutes, but I finally got out and went turkey hunting. And I made a big mistake, damn it, when I got back to tell him what happened. <laughs> and you don't want to ever do that with Larry Wysoon because they'll never let you forget it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. A couple of years ago, we were out at Port Mansfield fishing offshore. And we we're out in a boat, a bunch of us. And uh, we were catching some small tuna and, and whatever. And it was my turn in the chair. And uh, Blue Marlin hit. Holy smokes, he come out of the water. And and I'm trying to pass, I'm saying, I'm trying to be a good guy and pass a rod off to somebody that, you know, hadn't caught a Blue Marlin before. All of a sudden, Larry reaches out with that great big giant hand of his and he says, I'll take that damn rod. (laughs) (laughs) I said, okay, have at it. So he jumps in the chair and he caught the Blue Marlin, which was fun. We had a ball. We have another buddy. I don't know if Larry told you, Rick Lambert. Uh, Rick is Miranda Lambert's dad. Okay. And everybody knows Miranda Lambert's probably the top female vocalist uh, nowadays. She's won all the awards, but Rick is a, a great guy. He's a fanatical hunter and fisherman. And he and I and Larry call ourselves the three amigos. And uh, we've been on a heck of a lot of hunts together um, up here in Wyoming, different places in Texas, Oklahoma. But uh, it's always fun to get together with him. Larry is often called the, the nicest guy anyone's ever met. That guy actually tips his hat to a woman when he meets a lady. I've never seen anybody do that before. But. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's it, I tell you what, it's you know, I think it disappeared with it. You know, we're all wearing so many of us are wearing ball caps now. It kind of disappeared with the ball cap. It's right. You need to need to start bringing that back. Uh, either yeah. that or wear cowboy hats more often. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, as we're kind of winding down here, one of the things I, I always like to finish up with is say you run into someone and, you know, maybe it's after a hunt or just someone that knows you're a hunter and, and you're talking with them and they're like, you know, I, I always love the idea of hunting. You know, it, it sounded so interesting, but I don't have any friends or family that do it. I don't know anyone. I don't have any experience. And it all seems a little bit intimidating. There's way too much to learn. Um, I don't think I can do it. See, what what advice or, or insight would you give to that person? Well, you know, typically I would tell them if there is a, a Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation or a Ducks Unlimited or a Mule Deer Foundation uh, banquet in town, a get together to join those and kind of mingle with other hunters, you know, and and uh, and try to meet some folks. Um but you're right. It's it's tough. I've known some guys 
and women, you know, lots of women are hunting nowadays. In fact, that's the biggest growth in hunting is, is females. But most of us had a mentor, you know, whether it was your dad or your best friend or your brother, or your grandpa, someone that took us out and learned surreal. But some people wake up in the morning and they'll say, by golly, I want to start hunting. Uh, as I mean, I'm talking about someone who might even be in middle age. And that's tough, but I, I think that uh, that trying to to uh, meet hunters at, at different social functions or whatever, and, and join some of these outfits and and uh, and uh, try to get acquainted is. And again, it's it's uh, it's not easy to do sometimes, but that's I think that would be my best advice. Well, Jim, I appreciate you taking the time today to hop on and uh, tell your story a little bit. Um, if people wanted to follow along or reach out, where could they find you online? Okay, you can go to jimzumbo.com, and uh, that'll take you to my uh, website. And if you click on the top, Explore Jim's Blog, um, I write a blog that's available to the public. Anybody can see it. All you have to do is click on it. That's free. And you can read a, read some of the stuff I'm writing. Uh, other than that, the only platform I use is Facebook. And uh, I know nothing about Twitter. And I understand now there's a new deal called Parler and MeWe. And I have no damn idea what they are. And I have no intention in learning. So basically, <laughs> you, can, you can look at my blog. and Oh, I also write, how can I forget this? I write the back page for Peterson's Hunting Magazine. Uh, which is a, a old respected magazine. It comes out of, uh, I'm not sure where it's produced, I guess California, but uh, it's about 45 years old. And I write the back page, it's called Rear View. So all you have to do is is uh, turn the back cover and there's my column. And it's just a one pager and it's about whatever I want to write about that month. So that's one <laughs> way to that's one way to connect. There we go. Well, I will make sure to link to that on the show notes page uh, for this episode. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time. And don't forget what I said about an antelope hunt. Now, you guys got a lot of antelope up there in Montana, but if you want to put in for Wyoming, uh, we got some good hunting right around here in Cody. Oh, I definitely, I will definitely be uh, talking to you more about that. Okay, great, Sam. Good luck to you, buddy. Thank you. All right, y'all, that'll do it for this episode of The Wild Initiative. Make sure to check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com slash 175 to get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. That'll do it for this week. Looking forward to next time. But until then, I hope this podcast inspired you to get involved, get outdoors, and plan your initiative for the wild. Thank you for listening to The Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com to get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from the Wild Initiative family, and more. 